Welcome to the Fleming Foundation's podcast series, From Under the Rubble. Our guest today, or I should say our permanent pundit, whether we like it or not, is Dr. Thomas Fleming. I'd like to welcome you to your own house, Tom. (laughs) Thank you. It's good to be here, as always. Well, yesterday was uh, Super Duper Tuesday 2. What do you think we should make of uh, any of the shenanigans that went on in both the Democratic and Republican parties? Well, let's start with the the much less interesting Democrats. Um, Obviously, this show is not going to be uh, a Fox News roundup of... uh, of uh, politically correct opinions on uh, on the various candidates, we're not even going to talk political strategy, but try to trot some uh, some of the potentially deeper lessons out of what's going on. The it looks like uh, Madame Clinton has permanently fended off the Bernie Sanders challenge. Sanders runs strong in many states, uh, and he ran quite strongly here in Illinois. But uh, it's, it's, it's not so much geographically located where his strength is, not strong enough to get to win states, typically, but it's a very strong demographic of people under the age of 45 who, and when asked, uh, Sanders voters say they are tired of Hillary and Bill Clinton, they regard them as thoroughly corrupt, and that it's it's time for a change. It, it seems that 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 not just left wing Democrats, but Democrats across the board are tired of uh, the rhetoric of idealism used by Democratic politicians, which is then followed up by cynical politics of corruption say, take the mayor of Chicago as a, as a primary example of somebody who has always talked a good game, but actually never, never delivers on anything practical. And, of course, Sanders is, uh, is running as an out-and-out socialist, and, uh, which, is, which is interesting. He's the first major socialist candidate to make a dent in American politics, perhaps since Norman Thomas who ran uh, time after time. As, uh, as Sam Francis used to say, Norman Thomas was one of the most successful politicians in the history of the United States. He never got more than a small percentage of the votes. But if you look at his first uh, platform, the first time he ran for presidency as Socialist Party candidate, that platform was completely in place before 1970. So, <laughs> who, who's, who's a success? Parties... The Republican Party that that gets elected virtually half the time, but never accomplishes any of its objectives, or the Socialist Party that in fact has taken over the country and turned it into a soft Marxist state, which is what we're we're living under a democratic Marxist uh, society. So it it looks uh, there's no way it would seem I, I couldn't care less by the way. There's no there's it, there's no way for, I think, Sanders to pull this out. Later on, we can, we can talk about some of these candidates because it's, it seems to me that Bernie Sanders is a pretty improbable character to be galvanizing younger Democrats. But it is interesting that even young women, women in their 20s and 30s, do not want to vote for Mrs. Clinton. 
for them, the woman's issue is, as I heard one of them say, the woman's issue is important. It's important to elect a woman, but maybe not this woman. And uh, they're tired of being chumps, which is, you know, to be a feminist is to be a victim of the Democratic Party. Did you? Well, well I see uh, I see that in Illinois, uh, she really only won by a little over 1%. Yeah, yeah. You know, in the same base, she won by uh, less than 1% in Missouri. And Ohio was a little bit more. Florida was the only place where she really... Yeah. And and we know why she won in Florida. She wins in southern states because in southern states, the Democratic Party is the African-American Party. It's the black party. Well, why, why in fact, why do the blacks vote for uh, vote for Hillary? I, um, I, I really don't understand yeah. that. Well, there are two reasons. The less important reason is that, you know, they used to say Bill Clinton was the first Negro president, yeah. and uh, the Clintons have always pandered to the uh, for the black vote. And uh, she and even though they were quite angry with them after the first Obama uh, election, you mean the, when when Bill said that Obama ought to be bringing him a drink? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Things like that got them angry, but. You know, uh, they feel a kind of historical loyalty. If, if, if I were cruel, I would say, you know, a lot of slaves fight for their masters, you know, because they're, they're loyal. And there's a sense in which, uh, in which, uh, the United States of America for eight years was the Clinton plantation. But the bigger reason is, it's pretty clear Hillary has bought off one way or another a huge percentage of the black Democratic leadership in the United States went through various favors and promises. So I, so if you take these two elements together, a, a sense of loyalty toward the family, and they still like Bill, despite what he said, because, you know, Bill is a lovable character. <laughs> but uh, so <clears throat> that but without... Uh, Hillary's voting strength is with people our age. Uh, well, I'm much older than you, but uh, still, people people from uh, fifty to eighty, uh, and uh, and minorities. Well, thank you. You're really talking about the baby boomers for yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. For the uh, rottenest <laughs> generation uh, to afflict this country. Yes. Well, I. <clears throat> I don't for a minute believe that this administration is going will indict her over this server program, but uh, but Congress has given uh, Brian Pagliano mm-hmm. uh, immunity on this. Yeah, I mean yeah. that this is at the very least uh, going to produce a lot of bad publicity for her, and, and as we both know, her unfavorability and dishonesty ratings are sky yeah. high, even among people who vote for, who vote for her. They say they don't trust her. They say they think she's corrupt. The, what we've got here is not only uh, Clinton's habit of mingling public and private business together, hmm. which, of course, sometimes shows up in the way of out-and-out corruption, bribery, but um, which both Clintons have been, uh, have been implicated in throughout, throughout their public life. But, but it's also just, you know... The, 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 the public business is, is my business, and, uh, and I can, uh, 
you know, however I handle it is how I choose because I'm above the law. But that's the smallest part of it. Her, her shenanigans with the email exposed vital problems, questions of security to a variety of enemies. I mean, British, British intelligence people have said that, that, that she compromised our security badly. Uh, an ambassador was killed, although she now did, seems to deny it. She, she said the <laughs> no other one was day. killed no, in Libya. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, nobody died there. But, uh, look, in the, the Libyan thing, it's very simple. She's, she's the Secretary of State. She, or, she's the driving force behind the so-called Arab Spring. These regimes topple. She says, we, we'll pay, we'll go anywhere, bear any burden, pay any price if we can, if we can liberate Muslim women from their patriarchal masters. Okay, so the, the whole, the, the Middle Eastern world is thrown into chaos and confusion. She is arming and, and giving money directly to Libyan rebels who then get angry for one reason or another are dissatisfied. And so the very people that this ambassador was arming. He was the bagman. He was the bagman for the U.S. government. What a thing to do with an ambassador. And that, and then they, they, they murdered and humiliated <clears throat> I've been told, and I don't know if it's true, and I'm sure probably a lot of our readers have heard this, I was told by a, a diplomat who knew the ambassador that he was known as a, a predatory homosexual. And that this, uh, and that in Arab countries, his behavior did not make many friends. You know, it's not that Arabs don't have a high rate of bisexual behavior, but that he, they, they felt he was shameful. So whatever the reason, this guy got hung out to dry. I mean, we can bugger our little boys, exactly. but you guys you can't. can't. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, also, you know, you're the foreigner. It's like, it's like a form of colonialism. Yeah. And this is a long-standing thing. I mean, French and English homosexuals have for centuries been going to North Africa, where, where a boy prostitution is so common. André Gide, in fact, writes about this. He was a, 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 a flagrant homosexual. So you've got this situation where, and while, while Americans are being besieged in Libya, she's busy exchanging political gossip emails with the notorious Sid Blumenthal. I mean, they don't call him Sid Vicious for nothing. I've, I used to deal with Blumenthal way back when, 20 years ago. He was always calling me up, wanting to interview me to get dirt on, on, uh, on Republican politicians. And I'd string him along because it was a way of uh, protecting myself. I, I never had any dirt to begin with. But um, his son, interestingly, attacked me in the Wall Street Journal. I said, gee, there's no family loyalty in the Blumenthal clan. I did his father favors. But, uh, so she's busy sacrificing the lives and security interests of America. She betrayed her country, essentially, in order to be pl making political plots with a person that even Barack Obama refused to hire because he's such a despicable character. Now, I think about that. That's saying something. Yeah. <laughs> Think about that. So it looks as if uh, the uh, Sanders revolution has, although it's a potent force within the Republican Party, and if Hillary doesn't conciliate uh, Bernie's voters, uh, she's going to be in trouble because they won't turn out. 
Well, I've, some of the polls that I've seen, uh, the exit polls, the, the Sanders supporters say they will not vote yeah. for Hillary. Yeah. You know, and I think that uh, some of that's the heat of the moment, and uh, if, if Trump is on the other side, that may force him out. But uh, this, the same thing the other way around. If, if Clinton's yeah. on the other side, it may force out some of the Republicans that said they won't vote for Trump. Yeah, that, that I think is uh, certainly true. Well, what do you, uh, do you want to place a little wager on uh, Clinton uh, surviving all of this? Or do you think? I think she will. I, I have said from the beginning that she was not inevitable as the candidate, that uh, I did not think Sanders was going to do it. Uh, they need, because Sanders represents one extreme wing of the Democratic Party. When you're willing to say, I'm not a Democrat, I'm a socialist, if you're going to be that honest, because they're all socialists. Yeah. They're all socialists. And, um, I mean, people say, oh, when, you know, Barack Obama gets angry if you call him a Marxist or a socialist. Well, if you, if you go down the line, you know, nobody's calling him a revolutionary communist who wants to cut off everybody's head. He's not Lenin or Stalin. But he is Edvard Bernstein or David Lloyd George or any one of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of socialist politicians who advocate a large role in the economy for government, for state ownership of, of uh, many things that right now are private and of basically taking control, either by ownership or regulation, of much of the life of, uh, of your country. I mean, that's the socialist agenda, and there's hardly a Democrat. Okay, poor Jim Webb wasn't that kind of, of, uh, of uh, Democrat, but Webb only became a Democrat because he hated George W. Bush, a, a perfectly rational hatred. <laughs> well, do you find it ironic that uh, the socialists, candidate is doing all the work and uh, and yet the Democratic uh, Party is redistributing the wealth of the superdelegates yeah. to uh, yeah. someone else. Yeah, well, they... Uh, <laughs> uh, to, to each according to his needs. <laughs> From each according to his means. And, yeah, it's... Um, the, 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 what is interesting is that there should be any kind of idealism left in the Democratic Party. Because, look, everything they want, their war against the middle class, they more or less won that. Their war against Christianity and civilization, they more or less won that. They're plunging our country into a dark age in which a few feudal warlords, namely people like Harry Reid, are basically controlling the wealth of 300 million people. Okay, they won. If, 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 if the Republicans don't stand up like real men and women this time around and get together and quit their bickering, if that doesn't happen, then, then what, why, why, should, why should a Democrat be an idealist? He's, they've got everything. They don't need to have impossible dreams. But it is, it is symptomatic of a deep, or to use a Jimmy Carter term, malaise in the American people. There is a sense that nothing is going right. Now, one of the things that um, Sanders did is right on, because he, he's, he's essentially a national socialist, not an international socialist. In other words, he's more like Mussolini and Hitler. I'm not talking about racism or anti-Semitism, obviously, in Bernie's case. 
but rather both of them believed in building a kind of socialist nationalist economic system in one country. And to do that, um, you know, you have to take certain steps. For example, you have to agree, as Stalin concluded, you have to agree that it's important to build up the working class in your own society, and you can't worry about the world. So Sanders has more or less taken a position of limiting immigration, certainly uh, stifling illegal immigration, and he has taken a very strong position that uh, America, through free trade policies like NAFTA, has destroyed the American economy, the industrial economy, that gave uh, middle-class incomes to blue-collar workers. Now, interestingly, on these two key issues, these two key issues, which were issues of my old friend uh, John O'Sullivan always called the national question, although John was on the wrong side of the trade issue, but on the question of the national question, Sanders and Trump are in agreement. And so the, 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 now, uh, Sanders obviously will not publicly say he agrees with Trump on Islam, although I, I have a, I have a strong suspicion, uh, that he, that he feels a lot more anti-Muslim than, than Donald Trump, who's been doing business with, with Muslim gangster sheiks for most of his adult life. So, the, the, this, these questions, which Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan tried to put before the American people, and which I for decades was trying to argue with conservative Republicans who always opposed both of them. Free trade and open borders is the slogan of the Wall Street Journal. You know, there are still conservative Republicans who think the Wall Street Journal is a conservative publication, or at least not hostile. To their views, and there's there's no more hostile publication. Well, frankly, my Democratic friends think that the uh, Wall Street Journal is a conservative publication. They, my, they point to it all the time yeah. as a conservative. Oh, I know. Publication. My my old friend Erwin Noel, who was ultra left wing uh, editor of uh, the Progressive up in Madison, Erwin Noel used to say, "Well, your friend, your friends in the right wing press," and I would say, "Well, who, what, what is the right wing press?" He said, "You know, the New York Times, <laughs> the Washington Post." So it all it all depends to some extent <clears throat> on your point of view. But uh, it was uh, Robert Bartley, the editor of the Wall Street Journal, who once told our friend Peter Brimelow that quote the nation state is finished. In other words. Any policy designed to improve life for Americans was stupid because money's fungible, it knows no borders, that, that money and labor have to be able to cross borders freely and, and, and trade goods without any restriction because nation states don't make any difference and, uh, and the only thing that makes sense are transnational corporations which are like, uh, they're like 18th century aristocratic families. You know, my, my, my brother is king of Prussia, my cousin is king of France, my daughter marries the Tsar of Russia, we, and we're loyal to each other. And even when we fight wars, we care about each other, we don't care about the, the poor slobs who have to go off and fight those wars. And that's what these transnational corporations are. They're, a, they're an international... Uh, elite class. Of course, they're always fighting and competing with each other, but ultimately they regard us as serfs. We're nothing. And so, and along comes Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, who basically tell the truth. 
that all, all American interests are being sacrificed to these gigantic, uh, these co gigantic corporations. And by the way, the whole conservative movement, uh, the, the National Review, uh, the Heritage Foundation, all of the organs of, of official, the Republican Party, they have endorsed this position over and over and over. And they don't, if you think that these people hate Donald Trump because of Trump's bad qualities, you know, because he's irresponsible, he's reckless, he has funny hair, he, you know, he's, he's abusive. Trophy no. wife. Yes. That's, that's not why they hate Donald Trump. They hate Donald Trump for, and this is usually typical, they hate him for his good qualities. They hate him because he can't be bought. They hate him because he is candid. And they hate him because he stands up for the interest of the American people and basically is, is says it, it doesn't matter. The, the economic well-being of China or Japan or, or anybody else in the world comes second to our own economic well-being. This is disgusting to people like Mitch McConnell. They hate, they hate him for, they can do business with Barack Obama because on the fundamental points, there are, there are, they all agree. And that, that is that the United States exists to benefit uh, the ruling class of the world. They agree on that. But Trump's an outrage to them. Tom, would you indulge me for a, a moment, uh, a bit of a primer? When I read about the movement conservative, the conservative movement, what, what are... Uh, what does that encompass? Who is that? <laughs> Besides National Review, yeah. Who is that? <laughs> the uh, uh, I co-wrote a book on this once, and I've 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 written extensively, so I'll just I'll try to put it really simply. The uh, the the modern conservative movement began with the end of World War II, and it had it had two or three elements. Had, uh, well, maybe four, and they've, and they've try, had to eliminate several of them along the way. One of the initial elements were some very old-fashioned upper-class people who thought the United States had no business getting into World War II, much less getting into global struggles afterwards. These were uh, the America Firsters, and uh, they were... Bill Buckley said explicitly he wanted to prevent those people from having any influence in America again because he was a global interventionist always. Uh, then there were people you might call the, the, the classical liberals. A, a, a classical liberal believes that everyone should have an equal opportunity to pursue his own happiness and nothing should get in that in his way. Not the king who has special privileges, not, the, not a privileged aristocracy, not a privileged church or even the Christian religion. Uh, morality is something that people have to decide for themselves, other than obviously not stealing and violating contract. Cultural traditions are fine, but again, they mustn't get in the way of the pursuit of self-fulfillment, which usually is basically the pursuit of money. The extreme wing of that were the libertarians and the, the, the followers of Ayn Rand. They got purged. The extreme wing, the extreme libertarians and the Randians got purged. 
Then there were uh, there, there were remnants of this sort of old kooky uh, uh, older traditions, which coalesced around the, the uh, anti-communist groups like the John Birch Society, and they got purged. So, and finally, the final element were people who valued the tr- the traditions of the of America, of Britain, and of Europe and the West. And these are sometimes called cultural conservatives, they're sometimes called traditionalists. Way back in the early days of National Review, we're talking about Russell Kirk, and Richard Weaver, and people like that. What they did, in, there was a man at National Review, one of the editors named Frank Meyer, a fairly clever man. Meyer was a libertarian, basically, but Meyer believed that you could, jo- you could, you could fuse this free market radical individualism of the, of the, of the capitalists and libertarians, you could fuse that with the traditions of, that Russell Kirk and Richard Weaver were talking about. You know, you read T.S. Eliot and you quote Shakespeare and you go to church on Sunday. And they even sometimes talked about the necessary cultural foundation for there to be a free society. And this is something which the uh, liber- libertarian economists Nobel Prize winner Friedrich Hayek, what he finally came to see in the last years of his life, that without a moral and spiritual foundation, you can't have liberty. Nobody cares about it. It's not something that just happens by itself. So this odd, this, this, this odd coalition of forces, which then was grafted into something they called fusionism, it was what became the basis of the Goldwater movement and and of the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, they were not elect. They they were no sooner elected than the whole movement fell apart because it was based on it was based on greed. It wasn't the, the so-called traditionalists were minor players, and they were there for window dressing. They were there to make it look good. We're not just greedy. We're not like Ayn Rand, who is this coarse, ranting lunatic woman. Oh no, we're not like that. We read Shakespeare. We quote Milton. We 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 go to church. So, but in the end, those people were always pushed aside at the conservative organizations and, and magazines. Look at look at look at National Review today. Do they have a civilized, educated person who writes for them anymore? Maybe they do, but I I have I, I don't read it. But I it's been years since there's been a, a, a an educated person that has been associated with National Review, or for that matter, the Wall Street Journal. I remember when the books editor of the Wall Street Journal, Ed Fuller, wonderful, literate man, he'd only been to high school, but he, but he read everything. There were, there were such people. Anyway, now the movement's been, been dead and done with since the early 80s, really, and it's just been, it's like the Episcopal Church. It continues chugging along because it's got the money, but it has no function. Well, what about the neoconservatives? I mean, the... they're essentially... Uh, they were nationalists, sort of uh, uh, democratic globalists, Trotskyists, as the, most of their parents were. They, they, had, they had like two or three issues only. Uh, and issue number one was the defense of Israel. Issue number two, the defense of Israel. <laughs> issue number three, the defense of Israel. And then after that, there were some foreign policy things. And they believe in, um, you know, as Irving Kristol famously wrote in an essay, two cheers for capitalism. You know, they were basically in favor of democratic capitalism as long as it was run by a, a big government and controlled by their friends. It's just, it's, 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 um, it's a kind of 
nice gloss you put on crony capitalism. Now, uh, the neoconservatives are, are mildly interesting in that they will play with either party. Their policies are essentially the policies of the French Revolution. They're terrified of, say, uh, Christian conservatives. They're terrified of patriotism. They don't like, they don't like, uh, the traditional European civilization. They're very much, you know, on the left, but they're very, very pragmatic. And so they will, they will support anything if it puts money in their pocket. Hmm. So Rupert Murdoch was bankrolling them for a long time. But, uh, the, what is going on now with the, with the, uh, the Trump upsurgence, it seems to me is much more interesting. Because Trump doesn't owe anything to, uh, to the, to the neoconservatives. They hate it. National Review goes, uh, and, and the Wall Street Journal, they are hysterical on, on, on the subject of Donald Trump. But Trump comes in a long line of Amer American kook politicians. That is, eccentrics who seem to come out of nowhere, um, and who attract a mass following of people discontented with the way things are. And you see this very, you see this in uh, William Jennings Bryan, who, what, four times had, was the Democratic nominee for the presidency at the, and almost won the first time out of it at the end of the 19th century. Um, the progressives, I know conservatives like to talk about how bad the progressives were, but really the, what, the, what the Midwestern and, and Plain State progressives wanted was to break the stranglehold of Washington politics and big business over the rest of the country. And they really, uh, Bob LaFollette, fighting Bob LaFollette, as he was known in uh, Wisconsin, was after all, uh, he was a fairly conservative Republican in most of his views. And then uh, after the war, of course, we get uh, we have a series of Joe McCarthy and uh, George Wallace, Pat Buchanan, Ross Perot, all of these people standing up and trying to talk to the little guys of America, shop Main Street shopkeepers, not Wall Street bankers, and to convince them that they still had a country worth loving and taking care of. And these people, of course, are uh, hated and despised more by the Republicans even than by the Democrats. Because, you know, when, uh, when George Wallace came along and at a time when uh, the Republican Party was trying to steal the South from the Democrats, all of a sudden Wallace comes along and everybody loves him. And he was, and he was, getting, and he was getting support in the Middle West. He was getting support in places like Wisconsin. And uh, Wallace terrified uh, Nixon and his staff because he showed how easy it was to do an end run around phony conservatives. So this, 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 these outbreaks, they come, you know, maybe eight or every eight or ten years. There's a populist outbreak, which is a challenge to the two-party state. We have a... We have a party state as much as the old Soviet Union or, or Mussolini's Italy was. That is, the fact that we have two parties with different names does not mean that they don't control the country. They control access. They control how you get your name on the ballot. They set the bars impossibly high in the various states. So the, 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 the U.S. governments at every level are constructed have been reconstructed 
so as to be manipulated by the two-party system. And all of a sudden, these guys come along, and they, they break it all open. When I was a, can a populist be either conservative or progressive? But yes, I mean, yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, Trump, uh, every, people are calling him not a conservative because he doesn't have the credentials of being there a yeah. long time. Yeah. Um, but I look out and see several uh, policy decisions that both he and Cruz are, you know, they're both running on building a wall. Yeah. yeah. They're both running on uh, protecting the American economy. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there's some fear about what type of judge uh, Trump might nominate, <laughs> but uh, who knows how? Who knows how Supreme Court justices turn out anyway? Well, I, obviously, we found out in the case of John Roberts, it's less important to look at uh, what they say they believe. And more important to look at how they grin at the camera. Uh-huh. When uh, when when Roberts was uh, running, uh, when when he was uh, in the running for becoming uh, chief justice, I just looked at his, his the way he handled himself, and I knew he was going to pander to the press and therefore to the left. Mm-hmm. And he has not at all disappointed me. Well, would you uh, would you call Trump a conservative? No. Would because- you call Cruz a conservative? Cruz is a conservative. If I, I use conservative now to mean uh, somebody who identifies with the conservative movement over the past 30, 40, 50 years. Um, in other words, I don't think the word has any meaning. Back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, a conservative was somebody who wanted to protect the interests of the dominant ruling class. When uh, people called H.L. Mencken and Albert J. Nock, when, some, when, when they were being accused of being conservative, they were outraged because they were liberals who believed in liberty. And they said, you know, and, and, and they said, no, a conservative is somebody who protects the interests of the Rockefellers. Well, uh, during the 50s and 60s and 70s, this was probably not true of any longer. But it is true today. To be a conservative now, uh, to be a movement conservative is largely to be a shill for large corporate interests, usually transnational corporate interests, which is why you don't care anything about immigration, why you don't care anything about cultural decay, why you don't care anything about uh, about trade deficits and a loss of American jobs. And um, if, if, if we're going to talk about small C conservative, there's almost none of that in American politics. That is, people who actually adhere to certain principles. Um, obviously, in among Trump's followers, a majority of them, I, I think, a huge majority, regard themselves as conservative. And what do they mean by that? I think they mean they're probably mostly pro-life, pro-marriage. They, they, they don't see why uh, men should be able to marry their Irish setters. They... Uh, so they they adhere to certain things like personal responsibility, personal uh, uh, taking charge of your own life, you know, not being dependent on the government, and these are all these are all good and wholesome themes. They don't constitute a coherent ideological movement, and in my view, they they never did. But they, they're they're conservative instincts, and what I would say about Trump is that. He's less important 
in himself, then are the people that he's inspired, the people that turned out mile after mile to come to see him in Cleveland, many of them saying they were turning out precisely because he'd been forced to shut down his meeting in Chicago. These people are angry. They feel that uh, their world has come to an end. The American economy is closing up. Uh, the, the, the world, the media, and the, the culture is in the hands of freaks. Their children are being corrupted in public schools. And they look, they, they look upon Trump as, as their savior. Now, it goes without saying, he won't be their savior. He doesn't have that capacity. If they don't, there's a great line by Ezra Pound, who was a bit of a kook in many respects, but he was old as, was a, was a wise man. And he said, uh, someone who waits for someone else to liberate him is a slave. The American people who crave a leader to set them free, a Moses to lead them out of bondage and into freedom, they are already slaves in wanting that. Believe me, the Americans 1776 did not wait for anybody to free them. They were organized and they had leaders, and, and there's a very fine book on, uh, on Paul Revere that shows to what extent the early years of the American Revolution had been, you know, were organized by the Boston Patriot Committee. On the other hand, those were farmers who marched out to Lexington to grab the, the British weapons. The, there, the, the, the American Revolution is very much a populist outbreak. It's Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys. It's, Ma it's a Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox fighting in, in, in South Carolina. Those are the people who won the war. And yes, we had a distinguished aristocracy of people like Washington and Jefferson that, uh, that helped to lead it and, and had, had the intelligence. But the Americans did not used to be people who waited to be liberated. They took, they took care of themselves, which is why they were so fond of lynch law and dueling and personal vendettas, simply because this is a society where the phrase... He's taking the law into his own hands was meant as a compliment. And the, the, if Trump is elected, and I think there's a, a chance that that will happen, that they, that they won't, especially if he gets a decent bodyguard. And there's a, there's a, there's a good chance, but what, what can he do practically? Let's say the Republicans control the Senate and the House. Well, they're going to thwart him at every turn. The only way Trump can get elected is if the Republican Party gets behind him. Okay, so that's rule number one. There's a, a, lot of, a lot of talk about will they, won't they. Marco Rubio says no, Mitt Romney says no. But in the end, the question is not what Mitt Romney and Marco Rubio say, but what will Mitch McConnell do? What will Paul Ryan do? And the evidence is already very overwhelming. They've been, they've been calling Trump and talking to him and giving advice, and they openly admit this. So, in other words, if they are willing to hold their nose. Now, in a parallel circumstance, there's a story that in the election of 1980, when Reagan got the nomination, the fat cats in the, who control the Republican Party, and have controlled the Republican Party since the 1850s. This is not something new. It's not like a coup. It was, the, it was the party of plutocracy from the beginning. Uh, so, there's a story 
I've heard it said from political insiders, but I can't verify it, and there's some doubts about it. But the story is that uh, Reagan had uh, was called to have a, a meeting with basically people representing uh, the the elite class that owns the country, and they said, "Ron, we're we're very upset because you know you have all this populist talk about the common people and breaking up corporate interests and all that. We we don't trust you." Reagan is supposed to have said, look, I, uh, I was spokesman for General Electric for a long time. I understand big business. I'll do, uh, whatever else happens, I will not do anything to oppose the interest of corporate America. And their answer was, in that case, we'll come up with the money and we'll support you. And, of course, what was the price for that? George Bush, as vice president. And Bush was running the country by the end of Reagan's first term. Will they do that? To, is that the game plan for uh, Trump? I think it's game plan number two. Game plan number one is to stop it, whether they shoot him or have a brokered convention. I love it. They call it an open convention. What is an open convention? An open convention is one controlled by a handful of, of Republican flunkies. That's an open convention. See, a closed convention is where actually people have voted for something. Let's talk about the the possibility of getting there yeah. for just a second. There's some news about uh, MoveOn.org is established is uh, supposed to be organizing what they say is the largest civil disobedience movement in the history of the United States to go up and down the East Coast and disrupt you know Trump's uh, meetings. Uh, you know our old friend George Soros. Yeah. Uh, at work there. Uh, Although he claims no longer to own MoveOn, but I'm sure he's an investor. <laughs> yeah, I think this would be a very good thing to have. And because, you know, you know what's good? How did, how, how, did, uh, how did Wallace and Nixon become so successful when they did? It was when people got tired of student riffraff demonstrations, when they got tired of bra-burning feminists and kids, you know, running riot at Kent State. And so the hard hats, most people don't remember that the hard hat rebellion, you'd have, you'd have construction workers dressed in their ceremonial garb marching through the streets in support of Wallace and then Nixon. If you want to, if you want to get Joe Sixpack to come out and vote, to put it, to put the six pack down for a change and turn the NFL game off. One of the ways to do it is to let a bunch of hippie freaks loose in the streets, preventing normal Americans from exercising their uh, their political rights. I think what now I know what Mulan thinks it's going to do that that the Trump response will be so violent and over the top that it will discredit him. Well. How well did that work in the 1970s? Did it get George McGovern elected president? Hmm? It did not. It did not. It got it got Dick Nixon two terms. Well, he didn't serve both of them out, <laughs> but that's another. That's he another was elected. Story. Yes, he was elected twice. So I um, and one of the things I'd like to see, if Mr. Trump were to call me, I w- I would give him. I would give him some free advice and, and, and give him some free speech work. But because what they're talking about is exercising free speech rights, you know, because we get... No. 
The First Amendment does not allow you to go onto private property or into a, into a political or social or cultural gathering and start shouting and try to stop it. They're trying to prevent people from speaking. They have no right to be in these places. This is unconstitutional. It certainly should be. It, is, it used to be illegal and it is certainly immoral. The, hot, the, 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 the whip hand has to be seized by the Republicans. The Republicans have to give up this nonsense, shilly-shallying rhetoric of, well, they have a right to express themselves. No, they don't. You don't have a right to come into my yard with a bullhorn and say, it's two in the morning, wake up. You know. No, you don't have a right to exercise your free speech at the expense of other people's convenience and comfort. And when people have paid for a room and they've come there to talk politics and to hear the candidate, either don't go or come and listen respectfully, and if there are questions, it's a question period, raise your hand. That is it. And frankly, I think they should be thrown in jail. And I think every state and city in the country should pass laws to prevent demonstrators of that type. I did hear one, one left-wing uh, uh, commenter on, on uh, NPR yesterday who, who they were talking about the move on people and they said, well, uh, you know, people have rights. I mean, uh, you know, the, these rioters, I mean, these, these protesters. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty fun. Well, uh, you know, the great protest of, uh, of my uh, high school career was, of course, the 68 uh, Democratic Convention yeah. in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, remind me, how did that presidential <laughs> election work out? <laughs> yeah, well, in the, in the first place, uh, it, uh, it, uh, did, it did not go to the left-wing Democrats. Yeah, no. And uh, in the second place, though, there, there, there were giants in the earth in those days. One of them was named uh, <laughs> Richard Daly, the, the senior governor of, I mean, mayor of Chicago, who, he sent the cops into bust heads. You want, you want to disrupt the political process? Well, and everybody was outraged. I, I was a neutral in, in 1968 uh, in, in, in these battles, but I mean, it seemed to me if, if you own a turf, you have to protect it. The other, the other, guy, the other guy with real guts was the um, president of the University of San Francisco, Hayakawa, the, the uh, famous linguist. And Hayakawa, when the students started demonstrating, he just, he just called in the cops and security people, and he had them dragged to jail. And if they, if they resisted, he had them beaten. I mean, because he just said, they're, 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 these, aren't, these, aren't, these aren't noble idealists, they're hooligans. The, uh, there, this idea that you have a right to break good laws because you have a beef with the government on some unrelated subject. So you get to, for example, you think some po policeman has acted improperly, so you get to prevent people on Michigan Avenue in Chicago during the Christmas rush. You get to go down there and occupy, uh, occupy Michigan Avenue. There's a, there's, a, there's, there's a word to describe what these people are doing, and it's called insurrection, and the other word is treason. They, sh they, they are trying to overthrow the established political and legal order. Oh, Tom, this, this is clearly civil disobedience, which is a highly regarded strategy. Yeah, it's a highly regarded strategy. It was, it was invented by John Brown, basically, who went around murdering people in their beds. 
And then it was, it was picked up by Mahatma Gandhi, who was advocated by Henry David Thoreau, who was a supporter of John Brown. It was uh, then uh, picked up by Gandhi and then Martin Luther King. Not a, no, not a single one of the architects of the theory and practice of civil disobedience, not one of them was a Christian. They were all anti-Christian. And the idea that this is somehow a Christian strategy is ludicrous. Christ and St. Paul told us that we have to be obedient to the princes of this world who are here for our own good because of our human wickedness. The idea that you don't like something, and especially here we have a so-called democracy. We have an election or a verdict in a trial. Well, I don't like that. So I think I'll throw a rock through your window. I think I'll lead a gang of thugs and, 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 and loot a furniture store. I think I'll steal me a TV because I don't like the way a jury trial came out. Now, this is childish and insane, but what I, I object to is the way the intellectual and cultural and political leadership of the United States not only tolerates it, they give their seal of approval. Well, there were excesses in the Watts riots, or, you know, the people have gone too far in the Black Lives Matter movement. No, no, the whole thing is wrong at the base of it. Mind your own business. Take care of your own party. If, if, if they want to, if the, if the move on people want to clean up a political party, why don't they start with Madam Clinton? Hmm. Well, bringing us around, uh, do you want to, uh, would you like to chat about uh, the prospects of uh, Cruz uh, being able to get to uh, 1237, you know, the magic number of delegates, or? Well, I don't think, uh, I don't think, I, I, th I think the, the numbers are so strongly against Cruz that that's, uh, that's impossible. You know, there's something, there's so many irritating little things about Cruz. What, what his smarmy style, the way he changes his dialect exactly the way Hillary Clinton does. You know, you'll hear Cruz in a debate in, uh, in the Midwest or, and, uh, and he, he talks like he's from just out of Harvard Law. But he goes back down to Texas and before long he'd swear he'd spent his life on horseback. This I find repulsive. Um, I find that the, the tape, the, the video you can see on YouTube of Cruz and his lunatic father going to Pentecostalist meetings and talking about Cruz having been anointed by God to make people, to make Pentecostalists rich, to loot the money of the wicked. I mean, you, you look at this, you say, are, are, are these people for real? Do I really have people living around me who go to churches like this and talk this way? Yes. Yes, I'm a, you're in Rockford. <laughs> yes, you do. Well, but, uh, but he, he, I think the numbers are against him. People are all claiming that yesterday when, when uh, Trump failed to deliver a knockout blow to, in Ohio, what, do you, what exactly do people expect? Trump, Trump was the only candidate who was competitive in all five states. That's right. That's no, right. None of the others uh, did that. Of course, Kasich, this is the first state he's won in 29 tries. Yeah. And but it's, it's also, it's the 10th time he's won an election in Ohio. I mean, you well, know, he is a beloved governor. If, 
If, oh, I heard today some, some leftists say, you know, no American candidate has uh, won if he didn't carry Ohio in the... Well, nobody... Who's the, who's the last time a governor of Ohio was on the other side? Well, the, the other thing about Kasich is he won with a little over 40%, yeah. 45 whatever yeah. it was, and he has... That's 45% of Republicans. Yes. And he has an overall 80% approval rating yes. in the state. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, frankly, some... Something's wrong with his campaign that he only got that much. I heard an old an old Reaganite strategist uh, on uh, on Fox the other day. He just he was he said, "Of course, Kasich is going to win. If a man can't, if a governor can't win his own state, governor. then what, what what in the world?" He said, "A Kasich win in Ohio means nothing. I tell you, it means one thing though. It means uh, if Kasich, let's say, I don't know what what he's going to get. He's got what 160 delegates now." Something like that. Yeah. So, uh, what? Let's say Trump comes up 150 delegates short. Well, is it Kasich for vice president? Is it Kasich for secretary of the treasury? State. What is it? State? Yeah. It's Kasich for something. And why is Kasich? He started out being as critical of Trump as everybody else, but all then he went into the into his Prozac mode. Uh where he can bear, he he makes Ben Carson look energetic, and he is not. He is critical of Trump, but he hasn't said he's unacceptable. He hasn't said he's a new low in American politics. So when people when people are conspicuously polite like that, excuse me, but I think Kasich is running for a cabinet position. What about Rubio? He isn't. Uh, he isn't even running for running for Senate in Florida. This uh, yeah. So he's gonna. Well, I think he better fold up his tents and go away and sell sell himself somewhere else. I mean, you know, Cuba has a lot of opportunities now. Maybe he can go. Maybe he can go back to Cuba. His his behavior was uh, disgraceful. It was from the beginning. He's a liar, a whiner, and a turncoat. And uh, it is nice to see that there are enough people who will vote in a in a Republican primary that see through this total fraud. So I'm I'm glad he's gone. Well, I, I look at Rubio's turnout in Florida, his home state, um, a little bit like Al Gore's uh, turnout yeah. in his home state in the 2000 election. If Al Gore had won his home state, yes, Tennessee, yes, he uh, he wouldn't have been counting hanging chads in Florida. <laughs> he would have been the president. Yes, so well, you know it's, they know him. They know him. Your homes know you. Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, Ru- Ru- Rubio's probably disappearing. The big issue is Cruz. Cruz started out okay. That is, he was uh, he and Trump made an al- a temporary alliance. It fell apart. Uh, I haven't been interested enough to note it exactly. Those who have been watching the campaign have uh, made the one general observation that in general, all that that Trump is a counterpuncher, not an aggressor. That is, if you say he's a disgrace, he shouldn't do, he shouldn't be running for office, then he's going to crawl all over you and 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 be and fight very dirty, frankly. But that he almost never starts. Okay, he started it with Carson, and that was stupid, and he backed off. And interestingly, Ben Carson's man enough to support it. I think he wants to be the attorney, uh, uh, surgeon general. Surgeon general. <laughs> I I I I I think he. He'd be better than a lot of our surgeons, General. <laughs> what was that woman who was named after a chocolate bar that we had a couple of years ago? Sierra Coop? 
<laughs> no, she was a lady. I think she was Surgeon General. She was. She. They asked her where she got her weird name, and it was from the the city where some chocolate where some chocolate bar was manufactured that her parents liked. You know, uh, it's. I wish I were making that up, but uh, yeah, no. I I think I think, uh, and and Chris Christie is another. I think it is interesting how the more the more competent, less smarmy. Uh, uh, rivals of Trump are are willing to play ball with them. And the big thing is, is Ted Cruz going to let the Republican leadership tell him what to do? Because I think they told him, if you want to, if you want to have a future in our party, you've got to start attacking Trump, Hammer, and Toms. Well, it certainly didn't work for Rubio when he took that route, and it doesn't. It's not working well enough for Cruz. Cruz must be very angry and frustrated because, you know, these Trump voters should be Cruz voters, in his view. He's been working, he's been heading in this direction, but then Trump just raced out in front of him on, on Islam and on immigration, and that was enough. Well, Trump did, uh, is doing something that very few can, and that is, uh, as an outsider, I mean, I, I have argued against the Oval Office being an entry-level position in politics yeah. before. Yeah. But uh, here's a man who, uh, uh, in in essence, in, in a lot of ways, he was a celebrity. More, frankly, he was more of a celebrity than Ronald Reagan was a celebrity yeah, yeah. at the time. Oh, absolutely. You know, he had a, He's a has, current TV star. Yeah, primetime TV. Yeah, primetime TV. I mean, everybody, I, I, I've never watched more than five minutes of the show. I just know it enough to... That it's like if you go to an if you go to a, an Indianapolis 500 race, you expect to see a fiery crash and people die, and that's what you're hoping for. So in watching the Trump show, you waited for him to say, "You're fired," you know. So this is a brash, outspoken, and obnoxious, and people loved him. He's the kind of gruing of virtual reality yeah. TV. Yeah, they love it. So, so uh, he's got a personality already constructed for television. He knows it works, and it and it has worked. And the stupid people in the press, the the media, have shown how idiotic they are. They thought they could destroy him, and instead, he's like a science fiction monster. The more they attack him, he feeds on negative energy. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I think he's unpredictable, and and yeah. uh, of course the. The Republican adversaries have found that out, but I, frankly, I think he's uh, he's able to take on a Hillary better yeah. than a Cruz, because Cruz is a there's a, he's a formula, yeah. and yeah. and uh, Trump is not. You you don't know quite what he's you're going to get, and and we know that Hillary's going to attack him at some point, and he's uh, and he's uh, going to attack him for uh, being. A, a war on women against yes, women, right, right. and and he's going to slaughter her yeah. with uh, the whole idea of what she did when when her husband was abusing women in the Oval yeah. Office. Oh. Well, for one thing, he's going to say, "I love women. L- look at all the women I've had affairs with. How can you say <laughs> I don't love women?" <laughs> but and I want to I want to close on this. I don't want to keep our our listeners uh, glued to the podcast all day long, but. Is, here's one possible scenario. They try to freeze Trump out in a brokered convention. That, that uh, however, that uh, he, they can't, he's only 100 votes shy or 50 votes shy or 200 votes shy. 
they don't. There's no alternative, and it'll be a revolution if they try to give it to Romney or Ryan. And certainly, they can't give it to somebody Trump has consistently defeated. So they're left with him, and they have to work with him. And nobody's happy. And a lot of a lot of uh, conservative Republicans, I mean, conservative movement types, Cruz voters and Rubio voters, a lot of them say, "We're we're not going to work for him. We're not going to uh, do anything. We're not going to vote." First debate comes up. And Hillary gives him some lip. And Trump comes out swinging in a way that no Republican in the history of their party would be willing to do. Calls her a liar, a thief, and a traitor, and a disgrace to the American people. How long do you think that? How long do you think Cruz and Rubio voters are going to take to embrace Trump when that happens? <laughs> That's my prediction. That his very aggressiveness, his hostility, and his rudeness, when directed against the common enemy, they'll fall in love with him. So that that is, I think, the formula uh, that that uh, for success. I also I also think that right now there are people practicing marksmanship <laughs> somewhere in the state of Utah in order to take him out. But uh, we'll see. It is going to be, it, it's the first interesting election since 1980. Well, uh, do you want to close with some thoughts about Machiavelli? Um, <laughs> well, uh, by the way, that's our next book club yes. meeting. And yes, that's why uh, That's why he's on my mind. <clears throat> Machiavelli in the Discourses, which we're going to be reading soon, has a profound uh, meditation on why a people who once get freedom are can't hold on to it, typically. And it's because the ordinary person, Joe Sixpack, Billy Bible, those people, they just, they want to go to their job, come home and kiss their wife, watch, watch a little television. They want to be protected. They want to have their legal and civil rights protected. They're not scheming to get power. There's nothing they can get. The elite class, in a, say in ancient Rome, it was the aristocracy, but the, the elite class or classes have an interest in gaining some portion of political power because it means a lot to them. Like if you're an aristocrat and you can put, uh, and you can make yourself dictator or make your friend dictator, then you can loot everybody. So you've got reason to spend 16 hours a day scheming for power. Well, in our country, it's sort of the special interest lobby. They scheme for power all day long. The environmentalists, the anti-environmentalists, the labor unions, the capitalist unions, the doctors, the lawyers, the homosexuals, the blacks. Everybody has a special interest group because it's a way of looting the public purse, which is really looting the taxpayer. And the rest of us just sit here and take it because we've got better things to do with our life. Every once in a while, there's an uprising against this an uprising against the notion that 1% of society can, can control the rest of us. That's what we're seeing in this election. And what, what Trump and his advisors have to learn to do is to seize hold of this passion and to keep it going and never to, never to appear to, be, to betray the people who are putting their faith in it. 
And if he can do that, I'm not saying you can turn the revolution around that's been going on for over a hundred years in American life, but you can darn well fix a few things. You can make some things better. You can restore American industry to some extent. You can make us more competitive. You can get us out of confrontational politics with Russia, which Trump has, has promised to do. We, we can defuse some of the situations that we have that we, where we have created so much trouble. And here, you know, he could frankly make uh, Rand Paul Secretary of Defense. That would be... <laughs> but it, I, I, I'm not, it is not Trump in himself that means anything. It's the energy that he's tapped into. And if he acts like a good CEO, he will have a lot of cynical professionals who can carry on the business. It's, it's, it's not going to be morning again in America, but m m maybe it'll only be twilight, and that will be a, a, a great improvement over the midnight we've been living in. Well, thank you, Tom, and thank you to our listeners for uh, spending this time with us. Uh, please visit the website, www.fleming.foundation. And uh, you need to sign up uh, with your email address to uh, have access to it. Um, please come and leave your comments. We look forward to uh, look forward to your support. Thank you. <laughs>